Datasets can be modeled in a row-wise, relational format. When two datasets share a common field, those datasets can be combined in a procedure called a join. A join combines the data of two datasets into one dataset that is often bigger than the initial two datasets independently occupied. In fact, this new dataset is often so much bigger that it creates problems for the machine learning engineers. Arun Kumar is an assistant professor at UC San Diego. He joins the show to discuss the modern life cycle of machine learning models and the gaps in the tooling. Arun's research into improving processing of joined datasets has been adopted by companies such as Google. Some of that research has been adapted into open-source machine learning tools that improve the performance of machine learning jobs with minimal new code required. Arun is a true expert in the contemporary field of machine learning, and it was a great pleasure to talk with him. Some recent updates to Software Engineering Daily land. A new version of Software Daily has been deployed to softwaredaily.com. It's got a lot of new, clean features, and we'll be eventually rolling these out to the apps. I know many of you have been using the apps to get the ad-free episodes, and you have been enduring the pains of our not-so-great mobile apps relative to your familiar podcast player. And we know that there are some performance issues. We're going to get those ironed out. In the meantime, if you can report any of those performance issues to our Find Collabs thread, which is also in the show notes for this episode, just report any problems. We're really trying to get the Android app and the iOS app cleaned up so that we have a place that's actually pleasurable to listen to Software Engineering Daily and have comments and have discussions and kind of a place for our community to collaborate with each other. Speaking of collaboration, the Find Collabs $5,000 hackathon ends this Saturday, April 15th, 2019. So there's still time to post your projects and find collaborators, and it's far from a finished race. There's plenty of time to submit your project, and it can be an old project that you're just looking to get some mileage and find some new people to work on with. Uh, It can be a totally new project. It can just be a set of ideas, a wireframe. It's a pretty open-ended hackathon, and all those details are in the show notes for this episode. With that, let's get on to today's show. Arun Kumar, you're an assistant professor at UC San Diego. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Glad to be here. Your research focuses on the machine learning life cycle of a software product. Describe the machine learning life cycle of software as you see it today. So the life cycle of machine learning powered software depends on the context in which the machine learning techniques are being used. People start using machine learning in all sorts of settings, like classical database resident data, data warehouse resident data. You want to do, say, churn prediction, sales forecasting, and so on. In emerging web companies, you want to do kind of click-through rate prediction, computational advertising. So the data environment there is different in, say, computational journalism. You want to rank stories and you want to prioritize what the journalists want to access. Those sorts of settings are different. But overall, across these very diverse set of environments where machine learning techniques are powering software, you can abstract out kind of three main parts of the life cycle of the machine learning powered software. The first, so I call these the source, build, deploy, three stages of the life cycle. The sourcing stage is where you go from the raw data in your data-driven application to the form of the data that you want for machine learning algorithms to start consuming them. And this involves a lot of steps. 
data integration, cleaning, preparation, feature extraction, and then schematization, identifying the features, all of that. And that often ends up being a huge bottleneck for data practitioners. But once you have that, then comes the process of building the model. Now, in the building stage, you have to apply a lot of ML techniques for things like feature selection, hyperparameter tuning, algorithm selection, and often that happens in a human-in-the-loop fashion. So that's the model building phase. You have to worry about concerns of accuracy, training efficiency, interpretability, and all of that. And once you've done that, you obtain a prediction function that you can integrate with your application. Things like, okay, on a future customer, I'm going to deploy this model, they are this likely to churn. On this particular user that has logged into my website, I'm going to deploy my model. They're going to kind of click this ad with this probability, something like that. So that's the third stage, which is deployment. Once you have gotten your trained prediction functions, integrating them into your application. And because your application space is so diverse, like I said, there could be data warehouse resident data, there could be web companies, there could be journalists and all of this. It entirely boils down to what is the application environment into which the machine learning model is being integrated into. But you'll see a lot of challenges there for kind of monitoring, making sure that the machine learning model is behaving as you would expect tracking the predictions and feeding that back into the first part of the life cycle, which is sourcing, because the data and the application are seldom static. They keep evolving over time, so you cannot just use the same model forever. You have to be in the loop and make sure that it's refreshed and it's kept up to date. Source, build, and deploy. So those are the three phases of the machine learning life cycle as you see it. And as you alluded to, the applications that we could potentially build within this life cycle are quite diverse. There's also really diverse tooling that you alluded to. Not only do we have machine learning frameworks, we've got databases, data lakes, data warehouses, streaming frameworks. Describe the tooling landscape as you see it today. So in terms of the tooling, because of the diversity of the kinds of applications and the diversity of the kinds of data sets people want to use, I would categorize the the tools for machine learning systems as like maybe five groups of tools. The first and the probably the most widely used are the in-memory frameworks, things like Python and R. And there's a huge number of libraries in both of these programming environments, scikit-learn, matplotlib, seaborn, pandas, and whatnot in Python. And then R has this whole community called CRAN, hundreds of libraries com- contributed by various professionals. The data sourcing part there is typically outsourced by people who use these sorts of tools to what they call data engineers. And these are people who use databases, data warehouses, you know, traditional SQL and user-defined function style programming. But increasingly, these two uh, roles, the data scientist role and the data engineer role, are being merged, and they are being called ML engineers. I was just amused yesterday when Ben mentioned that ML engineer has emerged as the second most preferred title for people in this space, which it didn't happen like three years ago or something like that. This is what Ben pointed out from a survey yesterday at the keynote. But yeah, I've known this for like three, four years now. ML engineer has been a title that's been around. So the first, like I said, in-memory tools. The second one is in certain applications, if your data sets are much larger than main memory, like if you have a single node and you have, say, 32 gig RAM, but your data set is a terabyte, then in the past, what people would do, people primarily in the enterprise settings who use tools like SAS or SPSS would downsample the data and then load it into memory. Downsampling is inherently reducing the value proposition of the data because you spend all this money to collect so-called big data and then you're throwing away most of that data. So what a lot of organizations have started doing is building new ML infrastructure that scales to the amount of data that they have. 
And this started like a decade and a half ago with what is called in-database analytics. And the focus was the database community realized that to do data analysis, it's not just SQL-style OLAP or business intelligence queries, but rather statistical and machine learning computations need to be run on database-resident data. And so Microsoft, Oracle, they all came out with these data mining toolkits that scale machine learning algorithms to data that is actually stored in the database. And so now your machine learning algorithm is transformed into a sequence of queries over the database. How do you rewrite a machine learning algorithm's implementation over this database resident data was a focus of research. And there was a lot of tools that came out. I myself was involved in one popular open source library for this called Apache Madlib, came out of uh, EMC Pivotal. That was one aspect. In the late 2000s and early 2010s, people started realizing that using your relational DBMSs for time-consuming machine learning computations was kind of wasting their licenses they were paying for these RDBMSs. So Hadoop MapReduce became a big deal. HDFS became a big deal. And people no longer feared kind of exporting their data and copying their data to HDFS. In the past, people said, okay, data has governance, compliance requirements. You should keep them in the RDBMS. But now with HDFS, things like Cloudera and all these companies came along. You could manage your HDFS clusters within your compliance boundaries. So they were no longer worried about copying the data sets. Once you copy the data sets, now you have this read-only analytics environment like Hadoop MapReduce. And people started using tools like Mahout, which is basically a machine learning library that's implemented using MapReduce as the functional programming abstraction and more recently, Spark, MLLib, and other tools in the HDFS ecosystem. So that sort of is the evolution of the tooling for scalable machine learning. Started with NDBMS Analytics, then Mahout, and then MLLib, and other sort of HDFS-based ecosystem. More recently, in the last three, four years, unstructured data has become a big deal. Even though a, a large majority of enterprise use cases focus on structured relational data, Text, images, audio, video, time series, these are also becoming important in many domains. And deep learning is the way to go if you want to process unstructured data. But many of these ML libraries and scalable ML systems that were built in the past were not tailored to building computational graphs of like very large kind of neural networks. And that's where TensorFlow, PyTorch, CNTK, MSNet, all these sorts of tools started gaining popularity. TensorFlow and all these systems are kind of standalone stacks. They have their own processing stack, they have their own processing kind of runtime. So that's another category of its own, of what we call deep learning systems. These days, people are starting to integrate these deep learning systems into HDFS-based ecosystems as well, Spark and TensorFlow, TensorFlow with uh, something else. And then the last category is what I call miscellaneous. These are like custom ML systems that are built as an end-to-end stack from top to bottom that do not kind of integrate with most of these, like things like XGBoost for boosted decision trees. That's very popular, especially on structured data. And then there's uh, DeepDive, which is a statistical relational learning system that came out of Wisconsin and then Stanford. So these sorts of tools are specific programming models for ML, not general purpose systems. And that's sort of what's the fifth category. Now in the cloud, all these companies like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they're launching their own APIs for easing uh, the training process and also the deployment and the inference process. How they, exactly they're building them in the back end, it'll be one of these sorts of approaches. They'll either build their custom stacks or integrate them into their existing stacks. But they just expose the APIs so that now if you're a startup, you don't have to go and implement your own ML system. You can just call APIs that are available in the cloud services or use one of these open source scalable machine learning toolkits and integrate them into your platform. So that's sort of a, a whirlwind tour of the evolution of the landscape of tools and systems for machine learning based analytics. 
There's such a bountiful array of problems that you could explore in this space. And you have focused on the area of joins and machine learning over joins. And the problem, as as I understand it from your work, is when you join two data sets, uh, two tables, you're often joining on a foreign key. And when you perform that join, you often have an explosion of the number of objects that you're looking at. And we'll get into this discussion in more detail if, if people don't really understand what a join is or, or why it blows up your data. But why, of all the problems that you could focus on in this diverse space, why are you focused on ML over joins? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So there is a lot of problems in sort of this whole landscape. You could focus on, say, scaling some ML algorithms and kind of building distributed implementations of it. You could focus on applying ML algorithms to various domains. There's a lot of exciting work that's going on there. But my own background is in database systems. That's what I did my PhD on. It was at the intersection of database systems and machine learning computations. So interest was in kind of data-driven computations Mm -hmm. and building systems for data analytics. And machine learning was just the natural evolution of the kinds of analytics people do. And Building systems is what excites me the most, but I want these systems to be principled, to understand the theory behind them, to understand the data model, the data flow, and the uh, the mathematics and the statistics behind what is going on. The other direction of kind of applying ML to various applications, there the focus is on understanding the application. And then you have to kind of characterize what the features are, what the business metrics are, what the scientific insights are. And that is just very diverse. Somehow that doesn't excite me as much as the building systems part. So that's why I focus on data management and systems for machine learning primarily. One other reason could be I'm an academic. I like kind of identifying research gaps that are kind of gaps in our knowledge of the landscape of computing. And this is one of the most important research gaps. What are the principles of machine learning systems? What are the foundations of kind of building these sorts of systems that are, one, user-friendly, that are scalable, that are kind of easy to build, easy to develop? People have studied such issues of usability, scalability, what I call developability and manageability in the context of relational data management and SQL analytics for decades. But what does it mean in the context of machine learning analytics? That's this huge open area. And I think there's like a lot of open research questions in that area. One of my main technical focus, if you would like to call it, is query optimization for ML systems. So the learning over joins is a form of query query optimization. Like relational DBMS is one of the celebrated results in query optimization is pushing selections, projections, aggregates through joins. The beauty of relational DBMS is, is when COD introduced relational algebra, people no longer needed to write very low levels, kind of C++ code, chase pointers to get records. They write logic-based one-line statements, SQL statements, or relational algebra statements, or uh, data flow language like Spark or Pandas. You write functional compositions. You don't write low-level pointer-chasing code. But under the covers, a middleware system called the optimizer translates what you've written into a very efficient execution on the runtime. What does that mean in the context of machine learning analytics? That is the primary focus of the technical aspects of my work. And this ML over joins turned out to be one of the key open areas in bridging this gap between data systems understanding and what machine learning computations do that I was just floored that people really haven't tackled before. 
because in my research, I like interacting with practitioners like software engineers, ML engineers, data scientists. Even during my PhD days, I've interacted with all sorts of people who use ML for analysis to understand what are the bottlenecks they're facing. I've spoken to like English professors, law professors. I've spoken to consultants in Deloitte and Amazon and insurance people at AmFam. A lot of really awesome people that I learned a lot from. And based on all of that, I understood that this data sourcing and feature selection part was a huge open bottleneck back then. Because when you're operating on structured data, they have to interact with the data and understand how do you express the data to the ML algorithm itself. And in that process, we kind of abstracted that out as a declarative data flow process and created a tool called Columbus that basically is think of that as a, a declarative data flow language for specifying feature selection operations. And now you can say, I don't want these set of features. I want to drop these features, add those features, these sorts of what they call dialogue with the algorithm. So we formalized that process. And the reason that was different was in the past, like the data mining and machine learning community treated this purely as an algorithmic problem. You just throw all your features at the model, let it automatically figure out what it wants. The reason that was not satisfactory for many of these enterprise users was these features mean something. They come from different sources. They have different monetary costs. Not all features are made equal for them. So that formalization led us to this system called Columbus, where we elevated the specification of the feature selection process to a declarative level. And under the covers, our system would produce optimized R code or Python code. And so that's sort of a query, multi-query optimization for the feature selection process. That paper sort of won the best paper award at uh, ACM Sigmod in 2014. It's the top data management conference. And so then I realized that the community was really excited about this direction. And I said, okay, there are other sorts of bottlenecks in this whole feature engineering process. And one of those bottlenecks was one of the operators we supported in our Columbus system was joins. Often your structured data is spread across multiple tables. And this is almost universal. Any company that manages structured data typically stores them as a normalized database. It's like database 101. Recommendations, you know, like ratings, users, movies, insurance, you have customers, employers, area, weather, and whatnot. And so there's this huge gap between how the data systems treat data and how ML systems treat data. ML systems almost universally expect the training data to be a single table. So this was this stark gap that I noticed. And the reason this gap arose historically was the separation of oh, the ML is going to be handled by someone from a statistics background in a tool like SAS or R. And the contract is that the data engineers will do all the data preparation and then give this massive single table to the data scientists. That separation of roles was starting to disappear. That's why this whole field of data science started emerging. The statistician and the data engineers are no longer two separate people. One person gets to see the whole picture from the raw data to actually producing the insights. And so then I realized that this is an opportunity that the whole landscape of multi-table data and ML computations operating on large amounts of data, if we put these two together, we can get even an order of magnitude gains in efficiency. In some cases, even two orders of magnitude. Like, you could reduce the runtime by 100 times. You could improve the usability of the process. You could kind of reduce the burden on the data scientist that's doing the analysis. And that's where this whole exploration of ML over joint started. That was the focus of my dissertation work. And more recently, kind of generalized this whole space of data preparation and model selection for a model building. It's both the source and the build aspect has been a key focus of my research. And yeah, the ML over Johns is what I'm going to be talking about today, later today, primarily because I have interacted with a lot of companies and they found this idea useful and they actually used it in practice. So some of them said, hey, you should talk about it to 
more people. Maybe they will also find it useful. And so that's why I came to Strata to spread the word among practitioners. Hey, look, these are two interesting ideas that some people have found useful. Uh, let me know if you have use cases that this could that you could benefit from. Tell me if I understand this correctly, but at an abstract level, it seems like in a database application, you want to break up your data into multiple tables because you want to spread out the data so that it's more efficient to access, it's put in a kind of a separation of concerns style situation. But in machine learning, you often want your data points to be represented in a super high dimensional space because you want to be able to do like feature generation or like you want your data represented in this multidimensional vector space with as many dimensions as possible. It seems like there's a fundamental tension between those exactly. two data representations. Exactly. And that gets to the root of why this whole space has a lot of open research questions from the standpoint of what is the programmability model? What is the computation model? What should the runtime look like? Because like you said, in the ML world, the thinking always goes, I start with a feature vector and then I apply my ML model to it. But 95, 99% of the time goes into getting that feature vector in the first place on structured data that involves these sorts of operations. But increasingly, like you pointed out, the siloization of different data stacks is antithetical to this promise of big data and the promise of using ML use, uh, on big data to derive new business insights or business uh, outcomes or scientific insights. And the existing tooling infrastructure that we have, the systems infrastructure that we have, there's just this huge gap. Because like I said, the landscape of ML systems, the five things that I outlined, you know, in-memory tools, scalable ML tools, deep learning tools, none of them address this existing problem. This gap between what the data looks like and what the ML computations do. And I think bridging that gap would require new foundational principles and systems from the data management and the systems community to build this. And coincidentally, there was this recent conference uh, that was started, SysML, that I'm actually going to after the Strata conference. Systems for Machine Learning, that's sort of the name of the conference. It's a new research conference that was started to be a home for this sort of research. Research that focuses on systems issues in the machine learning context. So looking beyond just ML over joins, like, of course, data is spread across multiple tables. You really need to get this holistic view of the interactions between these different variables for machine learning to yield maximum benefit. But sometimes your data may also be multiple modalities. You might have structured data, and then you might have text data, and then you might have time series data might have image data, like keeping with the recommendation example, right? You have products, right? Ratings, products, users. The products may not be just structured data, like brand, tags, and price, and so on. You might have images of products. You might have reviews people have written about them. These are unstructured data sources. Currently, if you want to exploit these sorts of unstructured data sources, you need to use deep learning tools. There are uh, TensorFlow, PyTorch, these sorts of tools to understand images, understand text using cognets and recurrent nets. And coincidentally, yeah, the pioneers of deep learning won the Turing Award, if you saw the news yesterday. These sorts of tools, how do we integrate them with the structured data processing tools? That is another open question. And that's the second focus of a lot of my research, which is making it easier to deploy deep nets for unified kind of multimodal analytics, where you want to pull together structured data and unstructured data for building predictive applications. And there, it turns out to be an even more challenging problem because the data processing and the data workflows of these deep learning tools are very distinct from what we know in existing data systems literature, which has primarily been relational and semi-structured and so on. Even scalable ML, people have largely focused in the classical ML setting on linear algebra computations. So 
very kind of predictable access patterns with different kinds of operators and behaviors. Deep learning tools have very different footprints. Their computational cost is much higher. If you do the so-called roofline analysis that the computer architects recommend, most deep learning models fit under the compute-bound regime, where the data access is no longer the bottleneck. I.O. is no longer the bottleneck. It's the raw computations that's the bottleneck. So that fundamentally changes what matters when we're building this sort of a system. Where does most of the time go? What should be optimized for in terms of the computations, in terms of the memory usage, in terms of the data layout and all of that? So that is a wide open, exciting space that we just started our foray into. When I've got a table and then I've got another table and I want to join those two tables, that results in a bloat of the data set for people who are very unfamiliar with the database joins, describe why that occurs in more detail. Oh, sure. Let's do that with an example. Like the ratings, users, movies, tables, and recommendations, say like Netflix or Amazon product recommendations, the data is managed in a multi-table database. So you have a, a table for product information, you know, like what's the brand, what's the name, what's the price. You have a table for your user information like user one, user two, whatever. You have 100 million users. Maybe you have a million products and 100 million users. Now, the third table is your ratings, where you want to predict is a user going to predict, uh, user going to purchase a certain product or not. This kind of is how all these tools kind of give you prediction for ratings. Like, hey, this movie, I'm going to predict that you'll really like it. Or this product, I'm going to predict that you might want to purchase. These are called recommender systems. And the way these are built predominantly is using content-based methods where they pull together information about all of these kind of features, about products, about users, about the ratings, to build a predictive model. So now in the future, when you as a user log in, it'll predict which of these products that you have not bought yet are you most likely to buy, and then give you that prediction. Now, in order to do that, the data scientist has to feed all these data into a predictive model, right, to train a machine learning model. And now if you do this join of ratings, users, and movies, this is a key for in-key join. In database term, it's also called a star join because there's one central table called the fact table that contains your prediction target, which is the stars, number of stars for your rating. Then you could have your timestamp of the rating and whatnot. And then you have these two foreign key attributes, the user ID and the product ID that point to these other tables. That's how these tables are connected. And user ID points to the user's table, so it'll be a record which user gave this rating in the past. And then the product ID points to a product. What was the product that was rated. And so now, in practice, you might have tens of billions, even hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of ratings that Amazon and Netflix would have accumulated over the years. And because they have hundreds of millions of users, each product, for instance, might be rated tens of millions of times. So now when you do this join, the record of that product from that product's table will now get duplicated that many millions of times after the join. Like if, say, if there's like 10 million ratings for that product, after the join, that product's record in the output of the join will be repeated 10 million times. There's a huge amount of redundancy that is introduced by these sorts of joins. Same thing can happen to a user. If the user has rated, say, 100 products in the past, after the join, the user's record would be repeated 100 times. And because of this repetition of these data values, the output of the join could be enormously large. It could be even 10 times larger than the size of the input database. This blow up can cause all sorts of bottlenecks. Like, obviously, storage is a bottleneck. You have to store this large intermediate file somewhere. That will waste a lot of storage space. It could waste a lot of memory if you're doing in-memory computations, and you're wasting a lot of resources. On top of that, in the ML over joins work, what we showed is 
Because the data has so much redundancy, the computations of the ML process also could have a lot of redundancy. That means you're wasting a lot of time doing compute as well. It's not just storage and memory, but also compute wastage. And that gap could be pretty tremendous. It could even be an order of magnitude, even two orders of magnitude in some cases. And now, as more and more enterprise users want to use cloud services, you know, like Amazon, Google, uh, uh, Azure, they have to do a pay-as-you-go kind of purchase of compute and storage and whatnot. Guess what will happen if your data is 10x larger? You'll have to pay 10x more money to Amazon. Now, that may be great for Amazon, but it's not great for all of these enterprise users. If your computer is going to be taking 10x longer, then obviously you're going to pay 10x more money to Amazon. So this sort of issue has become even more relevant these days because of the pay-as-you-go computation model, uh, pay-as-you-go economic model of cloud services. Even all of these cloud vendors internally, they want to build better platforms for their ML toolkits. So they are also interested in kind of improving these offerings that they have, supporting newer functionalities. As far as I know, none of them have yet to adopt sort of the ML over joints approach, but this is from research and it's kind of from recent research. So who knows what will happen in the future? One solution to the ML over joins problem that you explore is factorized machine learning. What is factorized machine learning? So the first approach we took to attacking this problem was this inspiration from relational query optimization, which is, let's say you're doing a selection over a record on the output of the join. Relational algebra tells us that you can rewrite that query into a selection over the input of the join and then you can still get exactly the same result. Based on that classical result that's like decades old, we introduced this technique of factorized machine learning, where the idea is we view the machine learning computation as an aggregate computation over the output of the join. Now we can rewrite that aggregate computation into aggregations over the input of the joins. So basically, instead of doing machine learning on the output of the joins, you kind of do partial learning over the inputs of the joins, stitch them together in a sophisticated way based on the algorithm, and you can reconstruct exactly the same model that you would have gotten otherwise. That is the technique of factorized machine learning. Basically, you're decomposing the ML computations and pushing them down through the joins to the base tables. And you've proved that that's the same computation? Yes. Yep. So the first work on this was uh, appeared, in, appeared in SIGMOD 15. It's the first part of my dissertation. Uh, we focused on this large class of ML models called generalized linear models, things like logistic regression, linear regression, and so on. They're very popular standard, simple techniques solved using gradient descent methods. We formally proved that the model that you get, the coefficients that you get, will be algebraically identical to the coefficients you would get if you do it on the output of the join. Now, because these are all numerical computations, there might be some floating point issues at the 10th decimal place <laughs> and so on. <laughs> okay. But in the machine learning How world, dare most, you? <laughs> in the machine learning world, that may not be that big an issue because what you care about is prediction accuracy. And we showed that the prediction accuracy is pretty much unaffected. So that was the factorized machine learning approach. Later on, we showed that, hey, this sort of factorized machine learning approach seems to be really useful for linear models. What other kinds of ML models can we do this for? And so that was the second research question where we wanted to show instead of trying to understand the computations of every ML algorithm individually, can we come up with an abstract representation language to do this factorized ML approach? And the inspiration, again, was from relational algebra, right? You have a, an algebra to express data computation in relational algebra. What is such an algebra in machine learning? Turns out that there is none, because machine learning is just way too diverse. But the closest you have is linear algebra, which is matrix manipulations. 
you have matrix vector multiplications, matrix matrix multiplications, and so on. You know, things like people who use MATLAB and R are familiar with. These sorts of computations express many ML techniques. It includes supervised ML techniques like the generalized linear models. It includes unsupervised techniques like clustering algorithms, for example, like k-means clustering. It also includes feature extraction techniques, dimension reduction techniques like non-negative matrix factorization and so on. So not everything, so like deep learning, for example, is not expressible using these sorts of bulk linear algebra computations, but it captures a large fraction of machine learning computations. Many kind of domain scientists in biology, in political science, and all these other fields, they write new algorithms for data analysis in these languages using R, using uh, these sorts of tools that express computations in bulk linear algebra. So then in the second work, which appeared in VLDB in 2017, we showed that if you can express your ML computations in this formal language, what we can do is build this infrastructure called Morpheus. It's a middleware layer that can factorize this language itself. And what does that mean? These linear algebra operations, there are only a finite set of them that matter for machine learning. It's like a dozen matrix, matrix, matrix scalar, and so on. We rewrite these linear algebra operators over the joint. So basically, instead of doing a matrix multiplication with a vector, where the matrix is the output of the joint, we rewrite that matrix vector multiplication to computations over the input of the joint. And this is where we introduce this abstraction called the normalized matrix, where your matrix in your linear algebra computation is no longer just one matrix, but rather the output of the join of multiple tables. So in the database world, we call this logical data independence. It's one of the celebrated aspects of databases, also called views. Like you don't have to physically create a data that is different from the data that you actually have. So physically, the data is stored in one way, but logically, you view it in a different way. That's logical data independence. It's one of the key benefits of uh, productivity that relational systems offer. We were the first to bring it to this machine learning landscape, this linear algebra landscape, with this normalized matrix abstraction. So now, what Morpheus will let you do is pretend as if your data is just a single table. Forget about joins, forget about multi-table data. Write your ML algorithm as if it's a single table. Give that to Morpheus. Give the schema of your data. Here's the key foreign key relationship, and here's the multi-table data. Morpheus will automatically rewrite that procedure that you gave into a factorized ML procedure and execute it on the normalized data. So now the data scientist no longer needs to worry about how do I rewrite my ML implementation to operate on the multi-table version. And this is basically automating the idea of factorized machine learning to any ML algorithm expressible in that language. And we prototype this Morpheus middleware on R, on Python. We have extended this in various ways, and we've seen some adoption from companies for these tools. Google and Oracle were also very supportive of this research. They gave me some research awards for this, and they were also excited in kind of integrating this into some of their stacks. So that's one of the things I'm going to be talking about later today. I'll also do a demo of our library. It's open source. All my projects are open source on GitHub, so Morpheus is available on GitHub too. So as you're describing, this results in dramatically less computation expense while well, in the training process, basically, right? Yeah. So any benchmarks for how much it's saving people? Yes. So one of the things that is interesting here is because we were the first to kind of approach this ML over joint space, we kind of gathered data sets that we can show results on. And I collected data sets from Kaggle, from all these repositories, and kind of instituted like seven benchmark data sets that are multi-table joints, like, like star schema joints. Things from like Walmart, like sales forecasting, things from Expedia, like ranking of hotels, things from Yelp, recommendation, bunch of data sets. Each of these real-world data sets fits the 
key foreign key star schema that I told you about. And if you were a Kaggle data scientist, originally you would just join all of them and then treat them as a single table. But now we have this factorized machine learning tool. We could benchmark how good is the factorized machine learning approach versus kind of do the join and then do machine learning on that table. And what we found was the speed up depends on two things. One is how much redundancy does the join introduce? And two, what is the ML algorithm? Different ML algorithms have different speed ups. Depending on what the data kind of fan out of the join is, you'll get different amounts of redundancy. What we saw across these seven real world data sets was you could get even up to like 35 times speed up. So that's like between an hour, you can reduce it to two minutes for your training process. And that could have real productivity gains for a data scientist. And like you're sitting in the loop, instead of waiting for an hour for the training to finish, it'll be done in two minutes. This is on kind of standard ML models like logistic regression, k-means clustering, matrix factorization, and so on. Now, some other ML algorithms, the computations may not have that much redundancy, depending on what the algorithm does. And so we showed that there, the speed-ups could be like 5x or 6x. So that means instead of an hour, it'll be kind of done in maybe 10, 15 minutes. So that's sort of, there is a spectrum based on what is the amount of redundancy the join introduces and what is the ML computation that is going on. But yeah, we could get even up to kind of two or one, two orders of magnitude speed-up in real-world data sets. Apart from the speed-up, which is the waiting for the runtime, you also have to remember that the memory and the storage requirements also go down. So even if the ML computations are such that there is no redundancy, like for example, we extended Morpheus to mini-batch stochastic gradient descent, which is needed for, say, neural network training, your runtime for neural network training will not go down that much because these neural network computations, the dominant fraction of the runtime is not the data access part, but rather the internal hidden layer updates during backprop. So in Morpheus flow, what we showed that uh, what we showed was you don't have to materialize your data just because your neural network computation doesn't have redundancy. You could save a lot of memory and storage if you do this join in what we call a lazy fashion. So you construct the records on the fly on every mini batch for the backprop to operate. So that could dramatically reduce the memory footprint of your data. So instead of maybe 10 gig, it'll be just one gig or two gig. So there are these different benefits that we saw when we benchmark these techniques. I want to learn more about your interactions with these corporations that adopted or took a close look at least at your approach to machine learning factorization so you said Oracle Oracle and Google they both they both used it like is it in production systems so there were four companies so logic blocks was a database startup that actually used it in production they have a retail stack and they have a their own ML analytics system that they built, and so they kind of integrated the factorized machine and they're learning. They're just taking your open source stuff off the shelf, and I think they kind of just took the idea and re-implemented it on their platform. The open source tool that we released was adopted by this company called Avido. It's an e-commerce company, apparently. Some data scientists randomly from Russia spoke to me at this VLDB conference <laughs> in Munich, and then said, "Hey, we looked at this. This looks very relevant for our e-commerce use cases." And I said, "Great. So then, just try it out and let me know." And then uh, we had some chats, and then. Uh, that data scientist also pointed out, hey, we also do feature interactions for you know, linear models because you don't want to just run out on linear feature set for logistic regression. Its capacity may be low. There's this bias variance trade-off. And so you want to do pairwise interactions of features. Turns out that's a nonlinear operation. And I thought about it a little bit more and then formulated a new research problem. And then I gave it to a student, and then that research problem appeared at Sigmund this year as another paper. So these interactions with practitioners can lead to surprising consequences. Apart from just adoption of my research onto their platforms, it can also kind of inform my own research for new problems in the future. So this is kind of 
positive feedback loop that I have experienced in my work. I also interacted with Microsoft. So during my dissertation days, it was kind of funded by Microsoft Jim Gray Systems Lab, Professor David Dewitt at Wisconsin. And Microsoft gave me kind of no strings attached access to their resources, their researchers, engineers, and code, and all of that. And they had this internal tool called Cosmos, which is like this massively parallel data, data parallel infrastructure. And they were building ML. Now external, those. right? Now it's available to the world, yes, on Azure, Cosmos DB. But back then it was internal. This was like five years ago. But I in- collaborated with this web security engineer there who gave me access to some of these multi-table data sets for predicting malicious user accounts. And I prototyped this idea on that data set. And it turns out that you could kind of save storage space tremendously on Cosmos as well. So it was kind of explored for production use case. I don't know where they took it afterwards because Microsoft had a bunch of reorgs. I don't know what was going on inside. And I lost touch with that team afterwards. But then I started interacting with Google, and this was the ads backend, the data infrastructure and analytics team, the DIA team, terrific people. They kind of had interactions with me about how do you do these sorts of computations on their database resident data. They run this massively parallel kind of planet scale database system, and they are in charge of the data for Google Ads, which is like the cash of Google. And so they were interested in bringing machine learning closer to their data rather than kind of shipping it out to different tools. And that's where they were interested in understanding these sorts of techniques. They funded sort of this research with a gift, a Google Faculty Research Award. And more recently, they've kind of migrated to TensorFlow-based setup. And I don't know if they've kind of integrated this lazy join approach yet with uh, TensorFlow, but it's now available on open source. We've kind of used it. Oracle, more recently... The head of Oracle Labs came and visited us for the SoCal DB Day, which was this research event that I ran last November, uh, last October in uh, San Diego. It's like a bunch of companies and universities in SoCal, the database groups, we get together, the companies give talks, the faculty give talks, the students give post presentations and so on. And Oracle Labs kind of noticed this project, Morpheus, and they thought it was very relevant for their Graal VM, polyglot data science engine that they're building. And so... They wanted to integrate some of these optimizations, these algebraic rewrite rules that we talked about, into the Graal VM engine itself. And so that's a collaboration that's going to start this year. So Oracle awarded me another faculty research award for that. And uh, they're excited about this because one of the key use cases with their Graal VM engine is data science workloads. So going from data manipulations to machine learning computations to deployment. And the data could come from a database. It could be an in-memory kind of file and so on. Graal VM handles a bunch of different front-end languages and back-end data sources in a unified manner. So that's sort of a very interesting use case there. It's a second level of generalization. Morpheus kind of generalizes different algorithms expressed in a formal algebraic language, but it has to be prototyped in R, prototyped in Python separately. With Graal VM, we can kind of build it once for the internal representation language of GraalVM, and then now it'll be available in Java, JavaScript, Python, R, everything in one go. That's sort of the exciting part of it. Yeah, we did a show on GraalVM. I didn't know about this application of it. I did realize it was a highly flexible tool. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Small world. <laughs> yeah, small world. Well, I mean, there were a bunch of people that were interested in GraalVM. It's a pretty cool system. It's a unified runtime for polyglot data analysis. So that was the factorized machine learning part. The other part was the avoiding the join logically part. So the first part was pushing down computation through the join. The second one was even more radical. And that one is a little farther afield from the database query optimization style world, because that one truly bridges this knowledge gap that exists between our understanding of data systems and our understanding of machine learning. And that's the Hamlet project. There, we actually applied statistical learning theory to show that in many cases, 
you can pretend as if the join doesn't even exist. Now, what does that mean? Like, let's say we have this recommendation example, right? Ratings, users, products. We showed that in certain cases, depending on the metadata about the data, you can pretend as if the products table doesn't even exist. And you can use the product information, the product ID in the ratings table as a representative of all of the product's features. That's pretty radical because now you can say, hey, I have a three-table database, but because of the metadata, Hamlet tells me that this table is potentially not going to help improve my accuracy. You can actually ignore that table altogether. The reason that happens is, like you said, the data exists in this multi-table form, but machine learning requires a single feature vector. Going from that data to the feature vector is a feature engineering process. That process today happens in an almost kind of a blind fashion. Data scientists are very greedy about features. They want to throw as many features as they can from as many sources as they can into the machine learning model, and then they let the model figure it out. What we showed was this sort of kind of bring everything together and then give it to the model approach, in some cases could be enormously wasteful. Enormously wasteful of both the computation time, the resources, and also the work of the data scientists. Like, from my interactions with some data scientists in practice, we learned that not all tables are available to you as a data scientist. Your organization might have hundreds, even thousands of tables. But if you want to do, say, a sales forecasting or a churn prediction application, you have to go and figure out what are the tables that I need, ask those relevant teams for permission to access that data, maybe get a copy of that data, and jump through all those hoops to get that data. Not everybody has access to all the data in your organization because of access control and governance restrictions. And so there's this hoop that you have to uh, jump through and then once you get the data, then you enter this regime of factorized machine learning, right? Like you have this multi-table data. So what we showed in the Hamlet work was sometimes you can actually avoid procuring these extra tables altogether based on the properties of what those tables are. And in very succinct terms, what we showed was that using the foreign key as a feature can actually capture the same information that you get by bringing these extra features in. Hmm. So in some sense, it's like, Using learning theory, you're telling that the query itself can be modified to avoid an entire join altogether. It's a very kind of a novel setting that truly marries the world of databases and uh, machine learning in some sense, because this is the first time somebody has looked into the learning theoretic implications of what are called database dependencies. There's like these two distinct fields of inquiry, database dependencies and learning theory, and now we kind of married the two to show that you can actually avoid the table altogether. Now, most people that are building machine learning models are not going to want to think about this. They're going to want it automatically making their machine learning training process more efficient. So do you have an idea on the insertion point for this kind of technology? Like how do you give it to the every developer out there that doesn't want to study relational databases and machine learning at the same time? Sure. In this Hamlet case... There is actually almost no code that is needed. It's a very conceptual contribution yeah. because as a data scientist, you get the tables it's almost from like the a database. compiler toolchain thing. It could be. It could also be kind of a tooling thing where you're kind of visualizing the data or getting the schema of the data first. Once you load your kind of data sets, right, you can just get the number of tuples in these data sets. And the Hamlet is basically a decision rule that says what we call the tuple ratio. If you have, say, for a given product, at least so many reviews, then the product record is not needed at all. So that's sort of the tuple ratio rule. Mm -hmm. So what you need to compare is how many records do I have in the reviews table versus how many records do I have in the products table. If that ratio, which we call the tuple ratio, is above a model-specific threshold, I can ignore the products table. 
that can be done just before you run the machine learning training. That can be done just before you do the join for the machine learning training. It can be done even at the level of the data system that procures the data. So the data engineer can just do this count of the number of records and then kind of ignore this table before you do it. So it can be done in many settings. What we showed in the Hamlet case was this sort of avoiding the join can potentially not hurt accuracy at all. So now the Hamlet idea has also been kind of integrated into production in different settings. There was this company, again, LogicBlocks kind of tried it out on their retail analytics use cases. But the most interesting anecdote that I have from academia is this company called Make My Trip. It's, as an, it's like India's Expedia. One day out of the blue, I have this engineer from Make My Trip email me saying, hey, I read your Hamlet paper. I tried it out on my data set. I just kind of skipped some data set, right? Like they're building the model. They had to do the join. I said, I looked at the tuple ratio and I decided not to do this, not to join this data set at all. My machine learning competition was eight times faster. And the accuracy didn't change. <laughs> and then he said he told his manager and his manager was very impressed or something like that. And then that student, uh, that person applied to UCSD as a master's student the next year, came to UCSD, did his master's, and he was my TA last year. <laughs> <laughs> That's preposterous. I know, right? It's like the way things work. So that was the fascinating anecdote. Google, the TensorFlow Extended team in, inside Google Brain was also excited about this, and they wanted to try it for some of their use cases. And uh, they asked the same question, where do we plug this in, this decision rule? There are many points to plug this in. It could be in an ML platform like TensorFlow Extended or Uber's Michelangelo, whatever, where you have this data validation or the data sourcing phase where you say, here's the data that I'm going to build the model on. At that stage, you can inject this decision rule and then say, okay, this tool will say this table is potentially not going to improve accuracy. Don't bother joining it at all. Something like that. So there's like many entry points. Many for... angles. Do you think we need some new databases for applications of machine learning or new abstraction? Like I, I look at the space and I'm just like, nobody has any idea how to build their quote unquote data platform. <laughs> right? It's like a complete right. mess. There's no best practices. Like I've got my data lake over here. I've got my data warehouses. I've got my streaming frameworks. I have yeah. no idea what to do with any of it. Or is this just like the beginning of some, you know, it's a new field and there's just no getting around the fact that we need all these different abstractions? I mean, I thought about this a little bit. This one thing that is happening is there's this upheaval on the technology infrastructure side, the systems infrastructure side. Cloud computing has changed a lot of things, right? Like people no longer just want a siloed RDBMS within their walls. They want elasticity. They want fault tolerance. They want decoupled compute and storage and all that stuff. And that is affecting the way you're using machine learning techniques as well. You might want to do it on large amounts of data. You might want to do it on small amounts of data. You don't want to buy a giant server and then underutilize it. So on that side, there is this upheaval. On the other side, there's also the programming models for machine learning are inherently diverse. There is no one unified algebra for machine learning, like relational algebra it is. And that's just the way machine learning is. So I don't know if you know Pedro Domingos at Washington yeah. calls us the five tribes of machine learning. Like there's the Bayesians, there's the connectionists, there's the symbolists, all of that. And all of these techniques of machine learning are popular in different settings. Like logistic regression still remains the most popular classifier on the planet, even though there's all these deep nets and stuff like that, because that often acts as a baseline for everything else. CNNs and RNNs are not that popular on structured data because they just don't operate on structured data. So deep learning tools, although there's this huge amount of buzz, are not going to kind of take over the whole machine learning landscape. On the other hand, the data systems infrastructure is in flux. Consequently, the ML systems infrastructure will also be in flux. But in my research, I kind of focus on a more abstract level of 
what are the processes that are fundamental, regardless of what the system's infrastructure is? So this avoiding the join stuff that I told you about the Hamlet matters no matter what your infrastructure is. Either you're doing it in memory Python, or you're doing it on TensorFlow, or you're doing it on Spark, a join is a join no matter where you do it. And so that's sort of my research taste, just focusing on these abstract problems that are almost fundamental to the process itself, rather than kind of coupled to a specific systems infrastructure. We can prototype this on different systems infrastructure with different systems concerns, but the contribution of the idea itself is rather abstract and kind of longer lasting in some sense. Now, concretely, where's this whole landscape of machine learning systems heading? I ran this panel discussion at Sigmod Deem workshop. So there's this workshop at ACM Sigmod conference called the Data Management for End-to-End Machine Learning. It's a new workshop that was started a couple of years ago. Uh, I kind of gave a talk there once, and then I ran the panel and the workshop last year, helped run it. And the panel discussion had a bunch of leading researchers. Mate Zaharia was there, Joe Gonzalez was there, a bunch of others. And I asked this question, is the systems landscape for machine learning going to remain fragmented as it is? And it seemed like the consensus was probably it's going to remain fragmented. I don't think there's going to be a kind of a consolidation of everybody is now going to use only TensorFlow and deep learning. That is probably never going to happen because the data types are just so diverse. There's structured data, there's time series, there's text, there's images. The interpretability concerns are so diverse. In many domains, you simply cannot get away with throwing everything into a black box model. But in many other domains, you can get away with throwing everything into a black box model. That is kind of a societal concern. That's kind of a legal concern. And that landscape is very different. Maybe in 10 years from now, web companies will start getting regulated very heavily. Like already GDPR has come along. And 10 that's years? Co- I know, right? Keep dreaming. Even- <laughs> More like six months. Six months? Okay. So it's already here. Then they'll start kind of facing, they'll get kind of regulators and auditors breathing down their neck. Like the reason why many enterprises are very slow to adopt a new technology is because they have legal concerns, because they have auditing concerns and so on. In healthcare, for example, they are even more conservative in many cases because every cost of mixed prediction is potential human life. So there's just this whole spectrum. On the other hand, like clicking an ad on Google.com is a very low kind of consequence for getting a misprediction. There's this whole spectrum. And because of all these fundamental reasons of what the data types are, what the business concerns are, I don't think there will be kind of a consolidation of everything around one system. But like I said, there are fundamental principles and processes that are inherent across these, all these systems landscape, and that's sort of what I go after. We could do a lot research. better than we're doing today, is what you're saying, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, we could have some consolidation, or at least yes. an option to consolidate. Yep. Exactly. I mean, I would think that a lot of cloud vendors are betting big on AI and ML services as a future for their cloud services. I think that could see a lot of uptake across a lot of companies. So in in some sense, that is a form of consolidation. Instead of running your own kind of platforms individually, like every company go build your own data science platform, the cloud vendors are kind of consolidating that. And of course, there's a slew of startups that are also building data science platforms. So at that level, it might be consolidated. So it's more at a macroscopic level that there's a consolidation rather than at a microscopic level of what is the execution engine for my training process. Right, right. We're at Strata. Let's wrap up by just talking about a little bit, you know, what what have you learned? I mean, I know you were only here yesterday, but you saw Ben Lorica's talk. I'm actually interviewing him next, so maybe you can give me some spoilers on his talk because I didn't see it. But what, what, are you, what are you learning at Strata? What, what kinds of revelations are you having? This is the first time I'm showing up to Strata. This is the first time I'm giving a talk at a practitioner's focus conference. I've been to a lot of Sigmod and VLDB, so research conferences in the database and data management world. 
I've also attended CISML. I'm actually, be, I will be attending CISML next week, which is this new conference. Um, CIDR, a bunch of data management conferences. But the reason I wanted to show up to this practitioners conference was to learn from the data scientists and to learn from the companies, what is the landscape today like? Where is it going? And on that front, there's been a lot of interesting kind of conversations and interesting things that I've learned. I went to a lot of talks, some of which I learned new things from on the explainability and kind of model interpretability stuff. There's this new thing called Shapley values that I learned about. Shapley values? Uh, Shapley values. This was day before yesterday at a tutorial. It's called Shapley values. It kind of generalizes and unifies a lot of model explanation primitives that people have started building. Sounds useful. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Then yesterday, I was interacting a lot with some of these companies, H2O, Salesforce, Amazon, Google, some startups, Determined AI. So people that I know, people, companies whose work I'm following, and kind of got to understand what, say, Salesforce Einstein is up to, for example, because that is quite relevant to kind of the kind of ideas that we are exploring. This process of feature engineering and model selection and all of that stuff, you want to make it a platform so that you can commoditize it. Salesforce kind of is applying it to 100,000 customers or something like that. You cannot afford to throw one data scientist at every customer even. So you have to create a platform that automates this whole process for all of those customers. H2O also has some sort of what they call driverless AI or marketing buzzwords. Mm. So, but I just wanted to understand. Yeah, I know, right? Self-driving. Everything is self-driving these days. <laughs> so I just wanted to understand what the landscape is among the cutting edge firms and see what sort of techniques and tools these data scientists and practitioners are looking for, what sort of things are still open. And just talking to them about my research and getting some kind of their inputs and their thoughts on that. Because like I said, I like interacting with practitioners. It creates this kind of virtuous cycle of one, you could potentially see your research getting adopted by them. And that'll give you the satisfaction of your research having real world impact, which is quite rare. Often research takes years, even decades to have impact. In some these sorts of areas, it can actually have immediate impact, sometimes even before publication. <laughs> the second is the other way around, kind of like Talking to them kind of exposes new open bottlenecks that I might not have thought of if I was just sitting in my room in academia. So that kind of informs new research questions. It, it leads to new research outputs, new systems, new concepts that we want to kind of formalize and build upon this. And all of this, I kind of like interactions with practitioners and kind of thinking about this process has also helped me characterize this whole space of ML systems into a book. So I, I don't know if I mentioned this because Morgan and Claypool kind of invited me and a couple of my co-authors to write a book about this whole space. So we wrote this data management and ML systems textbook. It's the first textbook in this area that characterizes everything that I've described, all the way from what's the history of this ML in databases to scalable ML systems to deep learning systems to ML lifecycle systems. We kind of laid out the landscape. What are these systems? What are the concerns? What are the systems issues? What are the research questions? What is the existing landscape? What are the open questions and all of that? And that book came out just few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. It is quite unusual for assistant professors to be writing textbooks, but this is a research-oriented textbook. It's targeted at practitioners, like advanced data scientists and ML engineers, who are looking for what is the state of the art if I want to do X? What, what is the existing things out there? What are the open questions? It's also targeted at researchers and graduate students who are looking to kind of enter into research in this area, because this is a hot area of research. A lot of people are starting to work on this area, but they need to understand what was done what worked, what was not, what is not done, what does, what did not work, and all of that. So all of this kind of was born out of my interactions with uh, practitioners, and so that's why I want to keep that contact alive and come to these sorts of conferences that allow me to interact with more of them. Arun Kumar, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you for all the questions and the opportunity to talk about my work. And let's enjoy the rest of the day at Strata. Agreed. Wow. 